In this episode, we discuss the Air Force JAG Corps Exchange Officer Program with Major Chris Bailey, the current exchange officer attached to the Royal Australian Air Force in Canberra, Australia. As we've discussed in previous episodes, leadership and ambassadorship often go hand in hand. And in today's interview, we explore Major Bailey's unique position in ambassadorship, how he gained experience to prepare for the position, and how you can employ some of his lessons to become a better ambassador, whether at home or abroad, and perhaps pursue a career in international or operational law. Here are a few clips from today's show. One of the the best pieces of advice I ever received, volunteer as often as you can with the emergency ops center at your base. It's in those kinds of experience and sort of on the ground training that you sort of develop your ability to issue spot. Welcome to the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast, where we interview leaders, innovators, and influencers on the law, leadership, and best practices of the day. And now to your host from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School. Welcome to another episode from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School at Maxwell Air Force Base. I'm your host, Major Rick Hanrahan. Remember, if you like the show, please consider subscribing on iTunes and leaving a review. This helps us to grow an outreach to the JAG Corps and beyond. Well, if you have any interest in international or operational law or seek a better understanding in how the U.S. works with our allies, today's topic is for you. Today, we're going to talk about the JAG Corps Exchange Officer Program with our current exchange officer attached to the Royal Australian Air Force. I'm personally excited to introduce our guest, who is an outstanding officer burgeoning ops law expert, and a personal friend of many years, Major Chris Bailey. Major Bailey, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Hey, Major Hanrahan. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Um, I think we were talking earlier. Uh, I can't tell you how excited I am that the schoolhouse is putting out a podcast. I think it's uh, uh, sorely needed and uh, very uh, excited. So I've already been spreading the good word around my office here in Australia. So you've got a couple Australian listeners already. <laughs> great. That's that's great news. As it's Tuesday here in Alabama and Wednesday by you down under in Australia, how's the future looking? Uh, the future is uh, big and bright at uh, about 9.30 a.m. in uh, Canberra, Australia. So it's not <laughs> not too bad at all. <laughs> great, great. Major Bailey currently serves as the U.S. Air Force Legal Exchange Officer to the Royal Australian Air Force, or RAAF, posted to the Australian Defense Force Legal Services Directorate of Operations and Security Law in Canberra, Australia. In this capacity, he is fully integrated into the Defense Legal Division, providing legal services and advice on matters affecting defense strategic policy and plans, operations, exercises, and training to the Australian Department of Defense and all branches of the Australian Defense Force. He assists in reviewing and drafting regulations and doctrine, commenting on draft treaties, and reviewing new weapons for compliance with the Law of Armed Conflict, or LOAC. In December 2010, Major Bailey entered active duty with a direct commission as an Air Force Judge Advocate, His prior assignments include acting as an assistant staff judge advocate at Cannon Air Force Base, then REF Mildenhall in the UK as Chief of Operations and International Law at the 100th Air Refueling Wing, where he subsequently acted as the staff judge advocate at the 352nd Special Operations Wing. He is also deployed in support of Special Operations in 2013. 
Major Bailey holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in Political Science from Southwestern University in Texas and J.D. from Chicago Kent College of Law. He is a Squadron Officer School Distinguished Graduate and more recently obtained a Master of Laws, or LLM, in Space, Cyber, and Telecommunications Law from the University of Nebraska. Next, he became the Chief of Intelligence Law at the 25th Air Force Joint Base San Antonio, Texas, before moving into his current position. With that backdrop, Major Bailey, might you be able to provide a little more background on how you became interested in the international and operational law arena? Honestly, my interest goes back uh, well before I joined the JAG Corps. When in undergrad, being a political science major, I'd spent a lot of time focused on international political science and uh, U.S. foreign policy. And when going to law school, uh, one of the most fascinating and outstanding classes I ever t- uh, took was my international law class. And uh, I just really became uh, very, very interested in how international law was developed through treaty, through custom, and how uh, nations apply international law domestically. And so, uh, I mean, going back to sort of 2007, 2008, 2009, you really saw at that point, um, you saw operations in Iraq and Afghanistan and big questions about how international law and the law of armed conflict applied to those conflicts. And it really um, just developed that uh, sort of focus uh, and dedication sort of to that kind of area of law. And that's really what ultimately ended up uh, taking me to the JAG Corps. Did you ever envision yourself sitting in the position that you are right now? I don't think I ever thought I would actually get this position. I'll tell you, um, back when I was a, uh, so this would have been the summer before my third year of law school, I had the opportunity to intern at Hurlburt Field. And while there, I worked for, uh, the SGA for the office was Colonel Michael Tomatz, and he had recently come out of the Australian exchange position. And just sitting with him and talking to him about the opportunities that he had, the different topics that he got to work on and cover while in the Australian exchange position. I just, I was hooked from the start. And so, um, you can ask, uh, most anybody, every, every dream sheet I've ever had since then is typically, uh, listed the Australian exchange position somewhere in the top five. So, um, I can tell you, I've, uh, I thought this would be an outstanding job. So I, I'm incredibly excited to get the chance to, to work here. And your background thus far has really centered primarily on international ops law. Did you make that apparent when you came into the JAG Corps? I did. And honestly, so to veer off a little bit, I've been listening to the other podcasts so far, and I know um, just the importance of leadership and talking a lot about mentorship. One of the best mentors I ever had was Colonel Korea Smith. And I remember while at Hurlburt, she was there as the deputy. And she had mentioned, she goes, look, Chris, if you were interested in international operations law, AFSOC and uh, the bases under AFSOC are great opportunities to uh, to sort of start to touch on some of those topics and issues. And so she had actually recommended that I put Cannon Air Force Base on my dream sheet. Uh, she said that you know some of the work that they were getting to do at Cannon and some of the issues and topics uh, were really you know would sort of match my interest in international operational law, and it it worked out. So. I have her to th- her and Colonel Michael Tomatz to think uh, just in highlighting some of the unique opportunities you might have in the JAG Corps. Wow, that's fascinating. So you actually listed Cannon Air Force Base as your top choice coming into the active duty from direct commission? So I, I only have to correct you on one thing. So Cannon was actually number two. Hurlbert, okay. was number, Hurlbert was number one on my sheet and Cannon was number two. But again, that shows you had that interest, you had the mentorship, and you were the interest, obviously, in in going into the international operations law, which sounds like that mentorship really assisted that. 
Uh, 100%. Uh, like I said, I, I mean, when I think back to some of the opportunities and just different assignments or uh, issues that I've gotten to work over the years, it all goes back to just having outstanding mentors like uh, Colonel Smith and Colonel Tomats just identifying that, hey, there are different ways to approach a JAG Corps career, right? So different assignments can uh, give you different benefits or different opportunities or work in different areas of law. And uh, they really keyed me in on how I might be able to uh, get a lot of that operational and international experience. So for the exchange officer position uh, that you're currently sitting in, was there any type of application process or interview process? No, no real specific uh, application process. One of the big things, so when you look historically at all the attorneys I've served in this position, they'll typically have an LLM in an operational area, um, either that being a international law LLM or space LLM, or in my case, a cyber, a cyber and space LLM. In the current position that you're in, what are some of your main duties uh, that you have? My primary responsibility is really uh, to serve as an exchange officer. So uh, in this position, I'm assigned under the Indo-Pacific Military Personnel, Personnel Exchange Program, or MPEP. And the the big focus for MPEP is really on developing and uh, furthering relationships with our coalition partners, with allies, and with countries that we're trying to engage with. So um, under the uh, Indo-Pacific MPEP program, there's sort of four key responsibilities that we have. First being to promote improved relations with participating countries, to enhance mutual understanding and trust with the countries that we are uh, operating in, foster understanding of doctrine and policies between both the U.S. and the host country, so in this case, Australia, and then finally developing both professional and personal relationships with the host country um, just to help further uh, cement the ties between uh, the countries. And just for our listeners, um, kind of situational awareness, are you currently working out of the embassy in Canberra, Australia? No. So in my current position as the exchange officer, I am working in the office of the director of operations and security law under the Australian Defense Legal Services uh, Division. And so in that office, it's uh, so I'm the only U.S. service member uh, in that office. So the office consists of about seven attorneys. Uh, so we have a um, Royal Australian Navy captain, so 06 equivalent, that uh, is the director for our directorate. And in, in the office, we have uh, approximately five other Australian attorneys, and then there is a UK Army Exchange attorney as well. How long is the assignment? So the assignment's two years, and so my predecessor, Major Scott Adams, is actually uh, now uh, currently stationed in the embassy uh, for the follow-on assignment. So that follow-on assignment is uh, over in the embassy. So uh, you can typically expect to serve here in, the, uh, in Australia for approximately four years. So far, uh, you, you PCS there, I think, this summer, and you have had a lot of OPSLA experience, and I know we've talked offline about some of the things you've been doing. Based on your experience so far there, do you believe that your background has laid a good foundation for what the job is going to require out of you? Uh, definitely. I think, uh, I mean, one of the big things that we talk about uh, in my current offices in Dossal is just the importance of having a strategic outlook and operational outlook. And I think that's one of the, the, the big benefits that you gain working in international law. You know, whether you're Can Air Force Base or my opportunities at RF Milton Hall, you're constantly looking at sort of how the, um, what policy, what international uh, situations or current events might be affecting how missions might be accomplished or conducted and trying to ensure for you know, mission success how you do that. Um, so just for an example, you know, some of the duties in my current office is reviewing 
Australian Defense Force or ADF regulations and doctrine, in particular those that focus on cyber and space operations, commenting on draft treaties and United Nations resolutions on behalf of Australia. Um, And in a lot of those kinds of areas, you know, you have to have a good understanding of current events, a good understanding of what's going on in the world, how the law might be developing in a particular country or in a particular, um, you know, treaty negotiation, things of that sort. And so um, I think the, you know, having that operations background, working with different career fields, working with operators um, at different levels of command are all great ways to sort of develop some of that strategic thinking and strategic mindset. So what are some of the bigger projects you see in the foreseeable future? I mean, I think some of the big ones. So um, as you mentioned, sort of in in the introduction, one of the responsibilities is uh, as a part of DOSL is advising on um, weapons reviews, future weapon procurements or capability procurements. Um, And that's one of the key responsibilities um, that I have in in my office. Um, Australia is a party to additional protocol, one of the uh, United Nations Geneva Conventions. And within those conventions, you know, there's a what's called the Article 36 requirement. Um, and the Article 36 is basically to ensure that uh, militaries conduct their methods of warfare, but also means of warfare consistent with the law of armed conflict. And so um, that's one of the key areas that we work on looking at, you know, new capabilities, new technologies that might be coming online um, and how it might uh, interact with the law. And who do you report to uh, through this process and, and what is your chain of command? So it's kind of unique. So my commander, so my U.S. commander is actually the Indo-Pacific MPEP commander. So that's Lieutenant Colonel Holiday, who sits in Hawaii. Um, and so I'll report to him for lack of a better term, sort of, you know, my U.S. Air Force administrative chain is the easiest way to articulate that. But then for my actual legal uh, work and legal process, my day-to-day reporting is direct to the Australian Defense Force uh, Director of Operations and Security Law, Captain Mullins. So you're providing advice primarily to the Australian Air Force then? That's right. So that's one of the, I think, one of the most unique pieces about this position is, uh, you know, I'm not a liaison officer. I'm not here to necessarily represent the U.S. on, you know, on any, any particular law or particular legal advice, but I'm really considered a uh, a member of the Australian Defense Force for the purposes of, you know, the two years. So I'm providing Australian Defense Force officers and planners as well as policymakers on legal issues, legal um, assessments on um, whatever the question might be. So the U.S. and Australian forces have uh, a very close uh, and intimate relationship, right? Uh, they've been fighting together in every significant conflict since World War One. And I read in the State Department's website that as of July 4th, 2018, the two countries marked 100 years of mateship, i.e. friendship, since the U.S. and Australian forces fought side by side for the first time in the Battle of Hamal. What has your reception been uh, since arriving in Australia with your new your new mates? <laughs> Uh, it has been uh, outstanding. I mean, I think um, I, I chalk part of it up to my predecessor, Major Scott Adams, who uh, left a, a great um, history in the position. I mean, very, very well regarded by the Australian Defense Force. Um, so the running joke in the office is, I, is I'm the new Scott Adams, um, which I am happy. I'm happy to have that uh, name uh, around the ADF. Um, now, everyone has been incredibly warm and uh, incredibly welcoming. Uh, that's one of the things that actually stood out uh, to me when I first arrived in the position. So within the Australian Defense Force, 
course, you uh, within the uh, the defense legal division, you have approximately 175 active duty attorneys, and that's across all three services. Uh, so just from in terms of uh, a camaraderie and a community, it is an incredibly tight knit community of attorneys and legal professionals uh, within the ADF. And I've had the opportunity to travel all across Eastern Australia and teach at uh, their version of sort of continuing legal education days. Um, so I've gotten to meet attorneys from every service, all different levels of command. Um, and everyone I've talked to has been very warm, very inviting. Uh, and one of the big things that stands out to me is just uh, the sort of focus uh, and uh, real expertise in operations and in international law. Um, I think that's one of the places where the ADF legal community really stands out. Um, it, it doesn't matter the rank, doesn't matter the years in. Everyone I talk to has a, a real interest and keen focus on how they operationalize law and how they incorporate law into advice they give to their commanders, uh, to their units that they're assigned to. Um, and it's just been uh, humbling to see you know, just such a level of expertise and have the opportunity to work with a lot of these individuals. That's amazing stuff there. So the Royal Air Force, in conjunction with the other military departments within the Australian military, have an approximately 175 practicing attorneys, which is obviously much smaller uh, than we have in the United States. Does that allow them to operate in a different fashion than uh, U.S. forces? No, I think that's a good question. I, what has been, I think one of the, the biggest standouts to me, just with the difference between the ADF legal community and the U.S. DOD legal community, I think is their size. So they are an incredibly small um, core, but that enables them to, I think, really um, cross the tactical, operational, and strategic legal advice uh, realms very quickly. I mean, just to give you an example, so uh, the director general for the ADF legal services is Commodore Peter Bowers, a one-star equivalent. Um, and him as the senior uh, uniformed attorney um, can rapidly, um, you know, uh, tap different levels of command to um, on legal issues and legal questions. Um, so for an example, uh, you know, I was at the uh, Royal Australian Air Force uh, conference about a month ago and while there, I mean, you basically had co-combatant command, um, equivalent of a major command, and joint staff legal counsel all in one room at one table. Um, so your ability to you know, work through issues, discuss issues, um, it, it can happen incredibly fast and it's in, uh, incredibly efficiently. Um, and I've been amazed at just how quickly um, they can get quality um, you know, articulated legal advice across the different levels of command. Um, and it just, I think it's an attribute of their professionalism, but it's also an attribute of how um, agile their structure is. Um, and again, like I mentioned before, just how joint focused they are. Um, they are, you know, the ADF is designed for that joint uh, fight. Um, and, you know, a lot of great lessons that I've learned as a U.S. attorney um, that I think would be, you know, different things we might be able to do um, you know, coming back to the U.S. So I also checked the uh, Royal Australian Air Force official website, and they mentioned that they have bases all throughout Australia, including the Australian Capital Territory, New South Wales, the Northern Territory, Queensland, South Australia, Victoria, West Australia, and, and obviously bases overseas. Are you involved in any operations happening within any of these kind of bases throughout Australia, or is it more kind of the strategic type of uh, advice that you're focusing on? 
so you, it's much more sort of at that strategic level. One of the interesting things, and like I mentioned earlier, just with the relative size of the defense force legal community, um, you'll have um, in any given time, you might be advising on you know a range of different topics and issues. But within the docile office, it's really more focused at the strategic level. The way I like to sort of analogize it to, um, with colleagues back in the States is um, if you think of each of the services uh, in the States will typically have sort of an a international operations law type division at the Pentagon. Um, and then you'll have the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, chairman's legal office that provides some of that more strategic thought. That's sort of what docile sort of sits between. So it provides some of that operations, international law, policy development and support to the services, but it also takes that sort of strategic approach as well from a joint mindset of really, um, you know, how do these um, treaties or particular laws or new policies affect the defense force as a whole? Um, so much more of the sort of that strategic level thinking. Another thing I found through kind of some of the prep for this was that the U.S. and Australian um, defense agencies signed a joint statement on defense cooperation in October of 2015 to serve as a guide for future cooperation. And kind of, I think, part and parcel to that is this kind of joint exercise that we do, the United States and Australian forces do, called the Talisman Sabre. Do you know much about this or are you have any involvement with uh, the Talisman Sabre? So uh, no sort of no direct sports talisman exercise talisman saber, but to sort of key in on uh, on the uh, first point you made, I think one of the things, and I didn't really I I think fully appreciate until coming to Australia and digging into some of the the history and background of my position, but also just the relationship between the U.S. and Australia generally. But uh, I mean, Australia and the U.S. have been allies in combat, uh, going to past every major. Um, and significant conflict since World War One, and so um, when talking with Australian Defense Force, uh, I'm always fascinated by how in tune they are to uh, U.S. policy, U.S. doctrine, understanding how the U.S. Um, basically goes to war, and um, and they um, are very focused on you know helping develop that um, relationship and capabilities, and you know that's part of the reason why I'm here is to serve in that sort of. Uh, lia, um, that relationship building between uh, the two countries. And so um, that's been one of the fascinating points is, you know, just the level of um, integration and support that you'll see across uh, the two countries and their the specific military services. Kind of switching gears just a little bit. Um, when you, Obviously, when you came in, you said you your predecessor was there and did a great job, and I'm sure there was some turnover there. Have there been any um, challenges either that you've had or the challenges that you can see it's a bit um, sort of a minor, but one of the, I think, biggest challenges coming into position, I think we take for granted uh, sort of the, the military acronyms, right? So uh, serving the U.S. military for eight, nine years, you get pretty comfortable with the acronyms of what means what and how you get computer access and how you, um, you know, where you go to turn in paperwork, and, you know, all those sort of simple but important administrative things. Um, so, you know, coming to the ADF, it was a brand new list of acronyms and a brand new sort of structure. So I really felt like I was at my first assignment again, uh, you know, sort of going back to, all right, how do I get computer access? What do you need, you know, me to turn into what office? And, but honestly, that, that's sort of been the worst of the, uh, when it comes to the challenges. Um, and I think, Part of the reason why is the testament to those that have uh, been in this position before me, uh, just building great uh, relationships and goodwill 
with the uh, defense legal community. Um, and I think one of the, the biggest challenges is something that both U.S. and Australia face. Um, but it's, you know, some of these questions with new emerging technology. So artificial intelligence, cyberspace, some of these new areas of law that uh, may not have a lot of law yet or the law is in flux or uh, trying to update to match the technology. And so um, that's one of the things I think that um, while a challenge, it's a challenge that we're, you know, both countries are facing um, and that within uh, my office, the Director of Operations Security Law, things that we talk frequently. So, um, you know, sharing articles, sharing podcasts, trying to get, you know, better understanding of some of these complex issues. Yes, a challenge, but uh, I think part of what is exciting about this position and positions like it, where you get the opportunity to work with, you know, coalition partners, allies um, on some of these, you know, really difficult sort of questions of the day. And I think we talked offline, you were mentioning how Australia is kind of at the forefront of some of this tech, right? Including artificial intelligence. Is there anything you could offer about that, about where we might be going in our relationship with Australia with that, or maybe any ideas or innovations that they have that we might be considering to adopt? I mean, I think that's one of the the big pieces um, in AI, and it was actually came up on one of your previous podcasts. Is just um, how you know how do we incorporate the law into uh, you know future artificial intelligence? Um, I think you know there's questions that are being asked every day about um, you know how artificial intelligence might revolutionize military operations, but even the practice of law. And so, um, trying to identify those issues early uh, to, you know, help understand where the law is, where it might be going, and how we can help shape it to um, to match the needs of um, policymakers. So, it would be fair to characterize that the Australians are taking this pretty seriously and, and putting time and energy into understanding this issue uh, greater. Definitely, yeah. Uh, so, what's one of the coolest things you've done so far since getting to Australia? Honestly, I, there's there is a, a long list. So, um, you know, on the on the personal side, it is tough to be getting to walk from the ADF legal school um, is basically walking distance to the Sydney Harbor and the Sydney Opera House. Um, so getting the opportunity to teach some courses on cyber and other areas um, and then, you know, sort of take a stroll down to the Sydney Harbor is uh, is is pretty great. But professionally, I think it's um, just getting to work on such a mix of issues. So um, my background uh, from the LM was on space and cyber. And during the LM program, you know, you're sort of wrestling with these big questions about how treaties might apply to a particular issue or particular topic. Um, and, and that's what I'm, I'm working on here. So it's how we look at um, sort of these new technologies um, and taking a step back from sort of day-to-day operations and looking strategically, you know, where might we be in five years, 10 years, 15 years? It's been fascinating. So kind of going back to your background where you've had a, a lot of experience with other types of ops and international law positions, how does this job kind of relate or differ from those previous assignments that you've had? I mean, when you're working at a wing, whether, um, and like I said, my background, Canon or RF Milnaw, you're working with tactical units, working tactical issues typically, and um, sort of, you know, you don't necessarily see how the policy might be developed or how legal interpretations might be handled higher above. That's one of the, one of the fascinating pieces in this position because uh, in support of the ADF, uh, I had the chance to work regularly with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, or DFAT. That's the Australian uh, version of the Department of State, as well as the Attorney General's Department, um, analogous to the Department of Justice, 
as um, their version of uh, or their space agency, so the Australian Space Agency or ASA and the Australian Signals Directorate. And it has been outstanding getting to work with legal professionals outside of the defense uh, community um, to work on those sort of uh, national security issues, um, national security questions about how other departments, other uh, countries might interpret a particular issue. Um, it's It's been very interesting because within Australia, because it is a smaller country, um, you have access to a lot of those departments and organizations in a way that you just don't in the United States. And so getting to um, listen to them, listen to their concerns and issues has just um, has really educated me a lot more on just some of the really tough questions and issues that policymakers and uh, the legal community that support those policymakers have to wrestle with. So maybe if you can opine on this or just kind of offer our listeners just kind of a, an analysis, if you were to have some issue come across your desk that does touch upon with other agencies and it's also maybe touching upon the U.S. and the Australian uh, military forces, how is that issue routed and how does that kind of operate? So typically, you know, we might have a topic or question come in and this is one of the the great uh, points to so with my predecessor um, moving on to the embassy position, you know, he's sort of in a, a great place to where if a certain question or issue pops up, him and I can bounce those questions off of each other. Um, and so he might raise an issue um, from the U.S. perspective or the U.S. point of view that he might be working and me on the Australian side. And so we can sort of collaborate and talk through those issues as well as working with um, the uh, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, DFAT, because they're going to be having conversations with the Department of State on a given area or topic. And so usually what that means is, you know, um, we'll have an issue pop in or come in and we'll have an interagency working group. So we'll sit down and talk through those issues and try to identify, hey, who are the key stakeholders on this question or this? Where can we get uh, sort of the best knowledge on this topic or area? Um, and then we'll usually meet, try and, um, you know, make sure all the parties understand, can highlight any issues or concerns they might have, and then really move forward on a um, on uh, on the same page from an interagency point of view. And maybe could you talk a little bit about the differences between your predecessor, which I believe is now at the embassy, and your that position and your position? Yeah, so the following position, so uh, Major Scott Adams is serving as the staff judge advocate for the 337th flight there in the embassy. And so he provides um, uh, really uh, military legal support to the embassy and the embassy staff um, and covers a, a range of topics and areas. A very interesting position and one that, you know, really, you know, is having to wrestle with a lot of uh, some of the tactical but technical issues that come up just when countries operate together and uh, work together sort of on a day-to-day -day basis. So is your position kind of a good position as an entry point? It helps build some of that foundational knowledge. And then when you move into the next position at the embassy, you have some of that foundational knowledge to leverage. That's exactly right. I think that's one of the hallmarks for this position. Um, I mean, when you go back and we, um, Major Adams and I were talking about this the other day, um, looking sort of in the history books to see how this position got started. You know, you go back to 2001 and it was Lieutenant General Rockwell was then serving uh, in the embassy uh, position and I think uh, highlighted just the need for, um, you know, have the ability to create um, some background experience with the Australians, develop some of those relationships and great partnerships um, and leverage that in the embassy position. So um, I think that was, you know, part of the the impetus for creating the, these two um, 
two positions to work the way they do now. Um, and really, I think going back to um, approximately 2006 or so, since then, it's you've seen this sort of traditional four-year tour um, where you might do two years in the exchange position and then two years as the SJ to the 337th in the embassy. And how's that been received by the Australians? Outstanding. I, I think they really appreciate it. I mean, um, like I said, I'm known as the the new Scott around the building, <laughs> um, which has been great. And the reason why is because they um, they know that that relationship that, uh, that they've built with Scott will last for four years, right? Um, that they've got a, um, an individual they can talk to, bounce ideas off of, and someone who has a, a good working knowledge of how the ADF operates day-to-day, how they view particular questions or view particular issues. Um, and it's a resource that you just can't uh, reproduce very easily. And if you know, how does this Australian exchange officer position kind of stack up with some of our other exchange officer positions, including the UK? So I know the um, uh, I actually had a, a previous deputy that had served in the UK position. I think uh, the biggest difference that stands out to me is um, in the UK position, uh, you were an exchange officer to the Royal Air Force there in the UK, whereas the position I'm in here, I'm, uh, while yes, um, aligned with the Royal Australian Air Force, I am in a joint uh, billet or a joint assignment. So my office consists of Royal Australian Navy, uh, Australian Army, uh, personnel uh, along with Royal Australian Air Force. And so it truly is a joint assignment. So um, on any given day, I might be working an Army issue or might be working a Navy issue um, or working a particular concern that touches uh, the services uh, jointly. Um, so it's a, a different mix, um, I think, of sort of um, where you're actually sort of positioned at. Do you think that's where maybe the ops background helps a bit? Definitely. I mean, I think one of the biggest things, and this is um, one of the things I always appreciate about being assigned with AFSOC units is you get a, a very good working appreciation of um, how to coordinate um, and appreciate the concerns that uh, Navy Special Warfare might have or um, Army Special Operations Command might have. And so being able to step in and sort of be able to articulate, you know, um, Army concerns, Navy issues, uh, it has been incredibly helpful. I mean, I think it's something that um, my office appreciate as well, um, just coming in because we can have a lot of conversations um, sort of more at that joint level um, as opposed to just specific to um, uh, Air Force experience or Air Force concern. So we may have some listeners that are interested in international law and ops law and, and maybe even in, <laughs> in this position one day or something like that. Could you offer any recommendations or tips for those folks? Definitely. I mean, first off, uh, for those that are interested in the exchange officer position, the the best resource and I think the, the first thing you should do is talk to a current or recent exchange officer. Uh, and the reason why is, I mean, I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for Colonel Tomats sitting down with me and taking the time to talk through his experience in Australia, some of the areas that he got to work in, you know, the challenges and opportunities he had. That really that lit the fire in me to you know to uh, to even be aware of this position and understand um, uh, some of the skill sets that you might need or might want to develop to to make yourself competitive for it. The other thing I would recommend as well, um, in terms of specific to the exchange officer positions, uh, get a good understanding, working knowledge of those countries. Understand the issues that they're facing. Um, you know, obviously, uh, we're on a podcast right now, so uh, the UK has a number of um, outstanding think tanks as well as Australia that including the Lowy Institute and that puts out a 
um, uh, a weekly and I think a monthly podcast that covers what are the sort of big policy issues, policy topics that are facing Australia. Um, so start listening to those. Understand the concerns that coalition uh, coalition partners and allies are facing. Um, what are the you know the big questions that they ask? Um, I know one of the big things that we focused on uh, internally within the U.S. Air Force JAG Corps is you know uh, understanding and tying our legal support to the national defense strategy, being able to articulate how the NDS informs our uh, our unit's missions, affect how we give legal advice, right? So what are the big topics and concerns our commanders are faced with? It's the same here in Australia. So um, if you're able to pick up the defense white paper, if you're able to pick up, um, uh, look at public statements from um, leaders in Australia, just to get a good understanding of what's, you know, current issues, current concerns, current questions that the services and their government at large is, is facing. So kind of with that in mind, are there any other kind of resources that you would recommend for people that just have an interest in international or operations law? Obviously it doesn't have to be necessarily related to Australia, but just in that uh, legal arena. Uh, one of the most important things I recommend is uh, being able to identify a, a mentor in this space um, and really any space that you're interested in. The reason why is um, there's there are a lot of great books, a lot of great podcasts, and um, but it's really being able to identify someone that's working in that area and just you know shoot them an email, give them a quick call, and say, hey, I'm just interested in what areas of law you might be working in, what questions you might have. Um, I mean, I remember when I was a young jag. All I thought about was, oh, well, you know, operations law is just is is deployment, right? Is me being able to get overseas and support um, uh, units with uh, legal advice in combat. And, and that's not that's just not the case. Um, one of the, the best pieces of advice I ever received um, was from my first SJ, um, Lieutenant Colonel Heather LeBue. And her advice to me was volunteer as often as you can with the emergency ops center at your base. Um, so, you know, we think about the AOC as being um, one of the the major um, uh, operational legal positions, but every base will typically have an emergency ops center, right? So um, being able to work with the EOCs, being able to work on an operations floor. Um, so if you're at a base or a location that might have wildfires or um, hurricanes or significant weather events, that EOC is an opportunity to give advice in time-sensitive, um, high-ops tempo sort of environments. And it, it's in those kinds of experience and sort of on-the-ground training that you sort of develop your ability to issue spot in those kinds of scenarios and being able to say, um, you know, incorporate your legal advice as a part of a um, an overall um, advice package that goes to your commander, right? So if you're working with uh, your Intel division or if you're working with uh, or Intel section or working with your ops section or planning a response um, to some sort of um, event, th incorporating your legal advice into that and help planning those types of operations. Uh, it's invaluable experience and something that I think a lot of JAGs might not necessarily think of uh, when they're at a first or second assignment. Well, great stuff today, uh, Major Bailey. I really appreciate it. Uh, Kind of with the last uh, thought in mind, any final thoughts from you or takeaways on uh, this new position you have or just kind of ops law or just kind of last thoughts you'd like to leave for our listeners? Uh, I mean, I think the biggest thing uh, when it comes to operations and international law in a lot of these positions is um, I think, uh, and I know I made this mistake early in my career and I've, and I've hoped I've uh, learned from it since, but 
Um, you know, I, like I mentioned earlier, I always thought the operations law was, um, oh, you know, I have to be deployed or it's, um, you know, real operations law is only the law of armed conflict. And that's really just not the case. Um, uh, I was at a recent, um, RAF conference here in Australia and, uh, one of the senior RAF attorneys, um, articulated ops law and operations law in a way that, um, I found really useful for uh, helping describe it, um, myself. And it was, you know, really, if you think about there's the law that we apply internally and it's how we regulate and how we are, um, basically manage our, um, our own force. And so if you think about that as military justice or, um, administrative, uh, law in that sense, but if you think about the law as it affects to, um, external, it's the law that regulates how we project our, power, how we project our capabilities, how we project as a force, um, that's ops law and that's operational law. Um, and I really appreciated that, uh, that sort of framing because it highlights that whether you're working in national security law, so domestic issues, if you're looking at domestic operations, so, you know, response to a natural disaster or something along those lines, um, or if you're working in procurement, right? So all of those, all of that work and time and support is helping shape how, uh, the U S department of defense or the Australian defense force projects force, um, projects their capabilities. And so, um, it, it all relates back to that operational law mindset and of, you know, how do we provide the best advice to the commander or to whoever our client is in order to achieve, uh, the mission, um, and help gain that mission success. Well, Major Bailey, great insights there. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, great discussion today. And I definitely, we wish you the best. I'm looking forward to hear uh, more of your success with our Australian allies. And that'll be it for today's show. Thanks. I really appreciate it. My top three takeaways include one, mentorship is critical to career development and leadership. As discussed in previous episodes, mentorship is key to career development and leadership and today's show reemphasizes this fact. Mentorship, whether through senior mentors or peer-to-peer mentors, can have a dramatic impact on one's career. Major Bailey heeded the advice of a senior mentor when entering the JAG Corps, which led him to list Cannon Air Force Base as one of his top selections in order to gain operational law experience. This opened the door to a career in international operational law, where he eventually deployed with special forces, worked as a staff judge advocate in England, obtained an LLM in space, cyber, and telecommunications law, and now holds the unique position as an exchange officer with the Australian Air Force. These experiences have all built upon each other. However, without that first mentor's advice, his career may have been much different. Number two, take ownership in your desired career path. This point, also discussed in previous episodes, re-emphasizes the leadership principle on being proactive. No career path is the same. And yes, the government will ultimately tell you where you're going on your next assignment. However, if you show desire for a particular field, take action to get involved, and develop experience, you'll set yourself up with greater opportunity to achieve that desired result. Major Bailey was willing to work in any location to develop the experience he sought to achieve. He sought advice, took action, and continually worked to improve upon his skill sets. Consider using this as a model for your career path. Last and number three, operational law does not mean just deployments. Major Bailey's biggest takeaway in terms of operational law was this last point. 
he said operational law is much broader than deployments to the AOR. Operational law occurs whenever we project U.S. policy and intent abroad or with others outside of our organization. This can occur in nearly any field, including procurement law, military justice, environmental law, and others. There are lots of opportunities within the JAG Corps to develop international operational law experience. For example, consider volunteering at your local emergency operations center, or EOC, which often faces challenges associated with hurricanes, wildfires, and other natural disasters that require sound and time-sensitive legal advice. These experiences can help pave the way for new opportunities. If you do get the chance to deploy and work with our coalition forces and allies, consider the unique opportunity you'll have to practice ambassadorship, develop leadership, and gain international operational law experience. Learn everything you can about the country or countries that you'll be working with and or in. Build up your situational framework to better equip yourself to offer sound and timely legal advice when called upon, and you'll be better suited in adapting to your new environment. With that, thank you for listening to another episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast. You can find this episode, transcription, and show note, along with others, at reporter.dodlive.mil. We welcome your feedback. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. This helps us grow, innovate, and develop an even better JAG Corps. Until next time, nothing from this show or any others should be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issue. Nothing from this show is endorsed by the federal government, Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of our guests and hosts. Thank you.